This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Creating Great Workplaces with Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. In his 30-year corporate career, Dr. Mark learned firsthand that healthy workplaces had a direct linkage to sustained growth and profitability, while dysfunctional workplaces experienced exactly the opposite. In his search for the secret sauce, Dr. Mark interviews senior executives from companies that have been recognized as a top workplace in their market or category. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Hinderleiter. Welcome to Creating Great Workplaces. You know, one of the greatest assets that any company can have is a well-known and respected brand. And one of the key elements of the brand is the health and the reputation of their workplace. And that's the focus of this podcast. My guest today is Sue Bingham. Sue's the founder and principal of HPWP Group and has been at the forefront of the positive business movement for more than 35 years. She's driven to create high-performing workplaces by partnering with courageous leaders who value team members' contributions. Sue is the co-author of Creating the High-Performance Workplace. And personally, I have a ton of respect for Sue as both a thought leader and a practitioner for creating winning workplace cultures. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you. And what a nice thing to say, Mark. I have that mutual respect for you as well. Well, then you and I are going to have a great conversation. (laughs) So thank you. So let's just start off with, tell me about your company, HPWP. I think I know what that stands for, but tell us. Well, it stands for High Performance Workplace. I get corrected by editors all the time because they want to make workplace one word, which it is apparently grammatically, but we want to separate it because we really want to focus on the fact that that's the place where work gets done and it needs to be one of high performance. Absolutely. And so you talk about that in your book, uh, creating the high performance workplace. So let's talk about that. What was the genesis of or the inspiration of you writing this? Well, like like you, Mark, I was, um, I'm a recovering HR executive. <laughs> And we're in the same, we go to the same meeting. Yes, we do. And I started off early in my career in aerospace in Southern California, big aerospace company, and it was a union. And we had a very traditional human resource function. There are about 80 of us, um, about 7,000 employees. And there were just so many, I felt like as an HR person, I was pulled into so many non-value-added activities. I was either lecturing people that were older than I was about something they'd done wrong, lecturing management. I was teaching rules. You know, it it was just the kind of stuff that I thought, this is not what I signed up for. Um, You know, I believe people are capable of far more. And fortunately, during that time, I, I met the person who became my mentor, who had established a what was perceived at that time, this is again, 35 years ago, to be the best management practices, let's call it. And it had certain elements. 
And the nice thing about a big aerospace company is they had lots of money. <laughs> and so we opened eight different plants and had two acquisitions under this same approach, management approach. We were very specific about who we hired. Leaders were more servant leaders. It, you know, we kept the management ranks very flat, lots of employee engagement, a core group of employees hired all the rest of the employees. They made the final decisions. They were hiring their peers and they were, you know, absolutely committed. And where these plants were, you know, I know if I wore my my badge out in any one of those towns, you know, a waiter or somebody that's serving us at a restaurant would say, how do I get a job there? Um, there would be a waiting list of people who wanted to work there. So it was such a better environment and it was, it was, it was implementable. What I liked is it was simple and it was implementable. So after I left the aerospace company, I started doing this in my human resource positions and then decided that just doing this with one company wasn't enough. I really felt more companies could benefit and went out on my own and uh, ended up with a team of, I think at our, our largest was 10. We sort of, we grow big and small based on the amount of work we have. Right. That's, that's, that's sort of my company. Okay. Okay. And somewhere along the line, you said, I got a book in me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said that way earlier than I ever wrote it. I, I think like most authors, yeah. you know, and you have it percolating there for a long time and then you just don't get to it. I did. I, I, the thing that helped me and the tip for anybody who's aspiring to write a book is that I went to a, uh, Alan Weiss, who's written something like 64 books yeah. on leadership. He does a uh, fast start. I think he calls it something else, but you know, for, for eight weeks, he just drills you in terms of what you need to do to prepare to write a book. He makes you do assignments. He makes you share it. He does it with a small group of people and it, you, you know, he's so um, insistent, sort of demanding in terms of his expectations that you don't want to not do it. So you, you end up making a lot of progress during that six or eight week time and that gets you started. Cool, cool. So that's, that's what got me writing the book. And, and um, you know, we've, we've ended up, it's, it's very nice. It's, it's done very well from a publication standpoint. Well, it, uh, I've read it and it's, uh, it's outstanding. And what I like about your book, Creating the High Performance Workplace, is heavy on practical, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, to me, books that are heavy on theory and light on practical just have limited value. But yours was, was the opposite, you know, had, had enough theory, but really practical things to do to create that, you know, that high performance workplace. And you've got nine or 10 chapters devoted to what I call some really good how-tos, right? Thank you. I'm so glad that's what I wanted to do. Absolutely. So just in this period of time, I'd like to ask you about two of your chapters that really resonate with me in terms of creating you know, healthy workplaces. So build trust and mutual respect. So give me that, give us the highlight of that chapter and how that really impacts that workplace culture. Oh, well, well, we think it's the foundation. Uh, if you have trust, you can do anything. Yeah, the you reverse know? of that is true, isn't it? 
Yes. If you don't have trust, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle every day. Yeah. But if you have trust, people are open to change. They're flexible. When decisions are made, they trust they're made in the best interests of them and, and the company. Um, and so it allows this flexible, loyal workforce to be willing to do just about anything. Trust is huge. In fact, we believe that if you communicate that trust is is such an important value, an expectation that any violation of trust is cause for termination. We have like a zero tolerance for deceit in a high trust environment because, and 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 when people know that, you don't start with that because people aren't used to it. But we're used to zero tolerance for drugs and so on and so forth. Zero tolerance for deceit is is a hallmark of a high performance company because you know once once you allow those little things to creep in, um, you start lowering your expectation of having high trust. It begins to 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 change the way your culture operates and you start putting in more rules and regulations and things like that to try to catch the people that are not trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just make that a, an expectation. Yeah. It's just, it's an expectation and, and it's a serious one. It's not that, you know, it's not that there wouldn't be a conversation with an employee. There was, is it isn't that we wouldn't look for what, what was the cause and where did that happen? But, but boy, it's, it's, we really don't believe in second chances if you violate trust. You know, in my experience, uh, you know, at, at high level leadership positions, when a leader like your mentor that you were talking about is trustworthy and just, that's just the way of doing business, right? Yes. And yes. so people get on board with that. But I've seen, and I'll bet you have too, the other side of that coin, a deceitful senior leader. Yes. And how toxic is that to a culture? Oh, it, it's terrible. In fact, I know, I know of a, a senior leader who talks culture, but doesn't practice it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a quick one minute story here. I was doing a leadership workshop oh, probably 12, 13, 14 years ago with a software company and two day workshop going really well. And one of the topics was core values right? As a way of building trust and culture. And so uh, went to break on day two or lunch break. People left. Uh, I stayed, you know, and just caught up on emails and stuff. One of the participants came back about 15 minutes early and had this really cool, I'm going to say, you know, nine or 10 inch pyramid. And it had the company's values inscribed on those. And he said, what do you think of this pyramid. I said, that's pretty cool. I said, not only is it kind of a nice, you know, just looking piece, but it seems to me like a great reminder of what the values are, right? I said, who gets this? He said, everybody. And I I was just reading something not positive. (laughs) It's kind of demeanor. And I said, so what do you think of it? He said, bullshit. (laughs) And so I was really taken back. And really, the, kind of his explanation for that was just what you said. Senior leaders don't practice their own core values. He said, oh, I've, and he I've, said, here, here, here was the punchline. He said, this pyramid is a joke. It is not only not an inspiration to follow our core values, it's a joke. He said they should have kept their money. <laughs> yes. 
I, I have one that's just as good as that. I happened to be sitting in on a deposition years ago where the CEO of a billion dollar company was being deposed. And one of the things is that the employees who were suing the company, um, that the reason had been that they had violated the company's principles for excellence. There were seven principles for excellence. And so I'm in on this deposition and I'm, I'm listening to the CEO who was not a good person. And the attorney said, so, so tell me, what are your seven elements of, of excellence? Your, your, and and uh, he, he could name two. <laughs> right off, roll right off his tongue. Huh? He could name two, right? right you know, right off the bat. And then he, he was stuck. Now, I knew the other five because I had been commissioned to teach them as their corporate training manager. <laughs> but he, he, he couldn't come up with more than two. Sue, if I had a dollar for every time somebody went through a leadership workshop of mine, came up after us and said, hey, any chance you can teach this to my boss? Yes, yes. <laughs> You're so right. I get the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, what's really sad is occasionally I'll get people from a company where their boss has been through it. And they'll come back and say, didn't my boss go through this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that <laughs> one too. <laughs> um, so we're, we're talking about trust. You know, Stephen M. R. Covey, you know, that's exactly the point of his book, The Speed of yes. Trust, is high trust cultures get stuff done. They get Low it Low trust done. cultures struggle, uh, you know, and, and I've, you've seen that in your career and so have mine. So it is a big deal. And to me, trust is like what you said. Trust is first because it's first, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, yes. So, uh so the next uh, chapter, I kind of want to just ask you about engage and involve employees. So you and I read the same polls. And for the last how many years, 10, 12, I don't remember, Gallup employee engagement polls say year after year after year that give or take 70 percent of employees are not, they're either not engaged or they're actively disengaged. Yeah. And so... How do companies do a better job than that? Well, I think, first of all, I, I think they sort of go into buckets as to why they, they're such low engagement scores. Yeah. One is because those in charge don't respect the, the brain power and the contributions that employees can make. For sure. So part of it's a lack of respect or belief in the human potential. I, th I think that gets set aside, hopefully more of a minority group. Uh, a bigger group, I think, falls into they don't know how. I attended years ago, 30 years ago, I attended a, a one-week course at the American Productivity and Quality Center in Houston. And it was full of tools as to how to read how people were responding, what kind of intervention to do, how to facilitate results. And that has been my toolbox for the last, wow, 35 years. And I think that management doesn't necessarily or leadership hasn't always had the tools. They may want to do it, but they're not sure how. So they may start off and they might ask a question seeking input. But if people aren't used to giving it, they, they don't get a lot from it. It's not right. a good experience. They don't repeat it. I worked, I have a fun one. I worked with a, I was uh, 
on the executive team of a company where the president had these four-hour monthly meetings. And he would he would get up and he 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 would say a, a question or pose an issue and give his thought on it and then go around the room. And I found that everybody else was, you know, pretty much echoing what he said. And this was my first meeting with him. And we we at the end of it he said, so pretty proudly, what 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 do you think of our of our monthly meetings? And I said, well, you know, it seems to me there was a lot of looking back and there's not much you can do once it's already happened. So maybe looking forward would be good. I said, and as it relates to getting and utilizing the the thoughts of the this talented group you've you've hired, when you go first, people tend to follow what you say. So maybe let me let me suggest to you that you ask, you pose the question and you or I can just write up on a flip chart what 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 they say. So he said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll do that. So next meeting, he wants to do it. He's going to go on the flip chart. So he poses a question. He goes to the first person. They say something that's in line with exactly what he thought. Oh, good idea. He charts it. The, the next person says something that's totally different. He goes, uh-huh. Next. And then, <laughs> so he facilitated his way into everybody that agreed with his position and ignored the others. Um, you know, it's a, I, his intentions were good. Yeah. It's, it's that they, they, I think it's just not, not really knowing how and getting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's, what, my, that's my thought. Yeah. What practices have you seen that, that really have been effective? And I like how you said it really harnessing the brain power of the workforce. Yeah. Well, I think it's, again, it's, it's part and parcel to me of a high performance workplace Companies that try to do employee engagement as a program, yeah. I think, is where they're non-successful. Been there. Uh, it's a program. You know, you've been there. I've been yeah. there. We've, I've been in charge of them. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> so it, it's, when it's a program, it's, it's not effective. It's, it's not effective even if you sort of designate a self-managing team and then give them all the attention and the tools and stuff like that and then ignore the rest of the population. Yeah. It really starts with that mutual trust and respect and the belief that people have a lot to offer. And if, you, if, if senior leaders and leadership believe that people have a lot to offer and that that's going untapped and that that's handicapping their performance, then they will engage people. But until they believe and understand that they're missing out on a lot of potential, it's like getting a great computer system and using 10% of it. You know, they, yeah. they've got yeah. this other 90% they're not using, but if they don't see that, they won't use it. It, it. My experience is it starts exactly where you said it starts. And that is senior leadership respecting uh, the contributions of the workforce. Uh, the flip side of that, you and I were talking about it before we started, was when you got the smartest person in the room syndrome sitting in that that board meeting or that uh, senior leadership meeting, they don't care about the opinions or the insights or the experiences, the ideas of that workforce. And they don't. They don't. They're, they and they're don't missing care. out on so much. They're paying they're they're make they're paying this this labor this payroll and they're they're only getting some small part of what these people can offer yeah you know it takes it takes effort and it has to be ongoing i love what you said it can't be a program it's got to be a way of doing business yeah 
And in fact, we've just, in fact, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mark. Yeah, we, no, we have just changed that element to, to saying creating commitment because I think employee involvement has just become too much of a program. Yeah. And I think that what the focus of employee involvement is, is creating commitment. And, and that commitment brings performance and loyalty and all those things we're looking for. So we've, we've changed that because uh, I think self-management is too far ahead of where a lot of companies are yeah. at this point in time. That's what I'd like to call it. But I think that creating commitment is a good interim step toward getting toward that self-management. So that's a great topic, self-management. Uh, so the world changed. You and I were talking about that. So a lot of companies have a, I mean, there are different flavors of uh, the virtual workplace. Some are completely virtual, uh, you know, software companies and right. you know, stuff like that. And some companies are hybrid, you know, different versions of that, but part of it's virtual. So in the world that we live in today, are the principles of building commitment any different? Or is it just the mechanics that are different? You know, that's so interesting. I, and I, we've talked some about this. I think different people, our personalities, our makeup, desire different things. They're the people that crave to be in a workplace where there's other people around and they have that interaction. I mean, that's, I'm not one of those, but, th but there are people that yeah. crave that. Yeah. And, and they'll feel disconnected if they don't have that opportunity. That's, exactly. And, and then there are the people, um, and I'm one of those who's worked with a virtual team for the last 20 years. So it's very comfortable. And to me, we're still highly collaborative. We're, we're very committed. We've stayed together through ups and downs. And so I, I think it's so situational that you, you need to be asking questions versus writing policy. And, you know, um, you triggered a thought or I've said for years talking about writing a book for <laughs> for a long time I've said to many kind of workshop audiences kind of tongue-in-cheek but serious at the same time is I'd say if I'm uh, mine here's the title of my next book know thy people right? <laughs> uh, and it's exactly what you were talking about there is no one size fits all in any kind of workplace setting, whether it's a factory, whether it's an office, or whether it's virtual or hybrid, there is no one-size-fits-all way to lead people. There, there just isn't. And I think that's maybe exacerbated a little bit with the virtual yes. uh, setting. So Well, and going to more of a gig economy is going to do some of that, too. I yeah. mean, there, there are just so many changes taking place that that, you know, we really, senior leaders and anyone in leadership needs to go in with a mindset of, well, let's see how this works. What's good about it? What's not so good about it? How can we tweak it and make it better? If you look at one of the things that I so admired about when they tell the stories about Apple is that they, they didn't wait till they created the perfect system. You know, they, they, they come out with updates and because of the speed of competition and development and so on, if, if we're able to uh, create something that's got a minimal, it's a minimal viable product, MVP. Yeah. What's the MVP, minimal viable product? If you can get that out, test it, improve it, 
like you were talking about with the workshop that you did. Yeah. You, you get it out, you test it, you improve it, and then it works for as long as it works, and then you improve it again. Yeah. Um, or you find new things to add to it as things change. If we could develop a mindset, if leadership has that mindset, I think they're so far ahead in terms of being successful in the future, which is the future's now. So yeah. um, they're they're so far ahead in, in terms of success. I have a client, president of a company, and really a, a really good leader that I respect and admire. And conversations we've had about the virtual workplace is. Uh, he's he's just experimenting. Just exactly what you were saying is, he said, I don't know the perfect answer. We're gonna we're gonna have to try stuff and figure it out. Yeah. And and so that's still happening. And so you know, I love what you're saying is get it out there, make it clear that this is not permanent, like nothing is. Uh, mm-hmm. And let, let's try stuff. Yeah. And then let's improve on it. And and so that's a mindset, isn't it? That it's a mindset. Get it out there and let's keep improving. Yep. It's a mindset. It's it's yeah. so if if leaders could embrace and the lead, and many of them do the excitement that comes with being able to be in a leadership position where there is the unknown, yeah, there is the emerging trends and things that are happening, and then being agile enough to to a create a culture that can adapt and then adapt yourself. I mean, it's it's very exciting. Isn't that the kind of the new? most important competency for a business today is agility or I mean, agility is overused. I like your word better. Adaptability. Yeah. And, and I think agility, unfortunately has become a program too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we want to turn everything into a program. Um, and I think that's because of our desire to be able to implement, which makes sense. Yeah. But, but we got to remember that, that even the implementation is an experiment and is going to be changing as you experience success and or failure. You know, uh, as you work with companies over the course of, you know, your own business and, and you've helped them kind of really kind of transform into that high performing culture. What have you seen, you know, the relationship between that culture that you're describing or that workplace is what you really called it and actual business performance. Is there a direct linkage there from your experience of working with clients? There, it's huge. And one of the things we like to do is say, tell us what your key metrics are because your culture will improve them. This approach will improve them. So tell us what your key metrics are and let's measure those. Yes, we've had many. One, one company, a, a very large company, uh, carpet manufacturer, was uh, had a turnover rate of 57%. They had 6,000 employees. And they That's had a, a lot of turn. Seven percent turnover, and they hired us because they'd tried everything else. And our focus was two things: one, first of all, we need to get your peers hiring their peers, and let's keep management out of that decision-making process. We're we're just going to have peers hire peers, and watch what happens because the peers are going to have higher expectations. The peers are going to be more committed to the success, and and they're they're going to pass on people they don't think are going to be there uh, and they're going to have to retrain somebody else. So do the peer hiring. The second thing we did was train the leadership in our, our approach, positive assumptions, mutual trust and respect, engagement, um, and those things. And they went from the CFO just told me this recently uh, within the last week, they went 
from 57% to 17% in two years. Fantastic. And so and he said that, that, that he said you can measure that difference in the millions. And that's a CFO who's looking at the numbers. Absolutely. Wow, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, so you're breaking the rules here, Sue. Managers are supposed to interview people. I but, know, I know. Yeah, but but you know when you when you get peers involved, they're looking for who can be a good teammate and carry their weight, right? And somebody I want to work with. Yeah. And and when you get and and I don't know, just because we've promoted, uh, you could get me on first line supervision as one of our major problems in manufacturing. But but if if we look at the fact that we'll promote somebody from the floor that's a really good guy. Or, or woman who's really um, reliable, really technical, excellent, so on, may, probably doesn't want any leadership kind of role or to be over over anybody. Um, but we put them in that in that role, and now all of a sudden they're they probably haven't had any training in 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 interviewing or behavior based interviewing or anything like that, looking for attributes and. But yet somehow they have to be yeah. the interviewer versus these five or six people that know the job the best. They do it every day. Um, they, they've had six hours of training that includes what are the attributes you're looking for? When we, when we ask supervisors or we look at what, what supervisors are looking for, it's, you know, maybe a good work record. Um, looks like they might have some technical you know, ability next to that versus for frontline jobs, you want to hire for character. You want to hire for people that are team players that want to learn, that are fast to learn, that'll have each other's backs, that are fun to work with. Um, well, that's what peers look for. And that's Absolutely. who they hire. How many people have you, as an HR professional, kind of rhetorical question, because it's a lot for both of us. How many people have you seen fail at a company and it had nothing to do with their technical functional competencies. Oh, <laughs> the, the the majority. Yeah, absolutely. Um, majority. It's, it's, a, it's a character issue. It's a uh, don't fit the culture issue. They're the not a team player. Yeah, yep. yeah. But the resume said they've got experience in this field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, we we hire in all frontline positions. We believe peers make the final decision, and that isn't second-guessed by management, and that they hire for attributes. They hire for personal characteristics, a lot of them, and they ask, they do a team interview with behavior-based questions, and then they make a consensus decision on whether to hire or not. And those folks who are engaged in that take it very seriously. They know that how important who you hire is to a company. And they, they, they are also the people that will root out if you've got a supervisor somewhere who's, who's, you know, running people off, you know, they'll identify that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, they will, they will just make the whole workplace better. You know, in addition, kind of to what you're talking about, reducing turnover, which you did dramatically to me, the force multiplier is, now you're the company's hiring people that will fit in to that healthy, high performance workplace culture that we're talking about. Yes. And you know, it's even more 
uh, more of a draw. We talk about um, companies having trouble filling positions, manufacturing positions specifically. Yeah. And and the 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 issue there is the perception. Well, in in a small town where I am, which has got about fifty thousand people, there's one employer that's a high performance workplace, and they have a waiting list of a hundred people who have other jobs because they've got the reputation that first of all it's hard to get into. They know they've got to go through a, a team, an employee team. I, I remember the owner of the company, somebody said, another business person said, hey, can you get my son in? And Sonny said, I, you know, that's going to be up to the team. The team makes that yeah. decision. And so the, they know it's that you've got to, that they're only taking the best. Yeah. yeah. And, and the best want to work for the best. Yeah, and what you're talking about to me is brand. Right? Yes. You know, uh, that is a company with a brand that I'm guessing respected by their customers. Yes. But certainly their brand as an employer. Yes. Is top of the heat. Sounds like, uh, you know, what you're talking about. Well, they even won some some major contracts where they weren't the lowest price, but because of the kind of company they were. Yeah. 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 I, I You know, you and I could do this for, for a long time, but. I, th- that is my experience. What you said is those companies, I mean, this is personal experience, uh, companies that have really a healthy culture that respects everybody and seeks out, uh, you know, everybody's value and input and ideas. They're just healthier. They perform better. I've just seen the direct linkage in my career as you have. Yes. So, and it's so simple. I mean, it really is not, it's not, um, you know, rocket science. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you and I ask each other uh, <laughs> this question before the call is, why doesn't everybody get this? Yeah. That, that, a, that a healthy winning uh, workplace is a high performing workplace. Yes. Uh, the, the dots just connect. <laughs> they connect. Yeah. So last question, Sue. Um, you know, if there's one takeaway that you want to leave our listeners, I know there are many, but if you could kind of just boil it down to one takeaway that you want everybody to get who's listening to this, what would it be? Um, well, I've I've often thought of it as the the secret to high performance. It's something that doesn't cost anything, and it's within an individual's ability to control, and that's their assumptions about people. Now, we can't help if we're more trusting or less trusting because we're sort of victims of our frame of reference, our experience. Yeah. But if you can recognize that I tend to have negative assumptions when something doesn't come from a department the way I expected it to, do I think, well, they were really working hard and um, something happened and I better go check what's going on? Or do I think, eh, they didn't really care about what they were doing and, you know, all I do is badmouth them and it doesn't get fixed. The, the key to me is if you have positive assumptions about people. Now that doesn't mean in the face of fact, but it means in the in the face of you don't know for sure. Take the high road. You know, I hate. Uh, I had a uh, a lady that was on my team back in my HR days. She was uh, our director of um, HRIS, so pretty technology savvy. But she had a saying that I just resonated with, and that is, give people the benefit of the doubt. 
with regard to a good intention. Yes. Right. Now, like you said, if if uh, if experience is five or six times that their intention was not good, then okay, right? But yeah. but uh, until somebody proves that, give them the benefit of the doubt that they have good intentions, just like you and I do. Well, it's the cause of it's the cause of silos within companies. It's be, it's it's how silos get created because I think somebody over there isn't doing their job, and rather than thinking that they're probably working hard and something's happened where I could go help them problem solve, they just, you know, put them down. It's, it's yeah. and it I, a negative environment. I will tell you early in my career, I was guilty of that, you know, that other department, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of thing. And so mm-hmm. with, with some maturity, at least professional maturity, <laughs> uh, yeah. I came to realize that, well, that's part of the problem. If, if that those are the assumptions that I care. Yes, yes. And then and then so you shift that, you get to know people and realize most people are like you and me. They want to do a good job. They want to take yes. pride in their they take pride in their work. Most people. And so let's give them the benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise. And that's the single thing I would leave leaders with. Okay. As leaders, if you can, if you are willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, if you are willing to operate from positive assumptions versus negative assumptions, so much of the rest of it will fall in place. Yeah. It doesn't cost a dime and it's within your control. Great tip. So the last thing is where can listeners find you and your company and then also your book? Uh, well, the book's on Amazon and you can find us at hpwpgroup.com. Okay. Um, that's where we are. We've, we've, well, you've got a remote team and we're always looking to spread the message. Cool. Well, Sue, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. And, and like I said, I have a lot of respect for your thought leadership, which shows up in your book, but, but your kind of real world experience as a practitioner. So thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Mark. And really it's, it's a pleasure to do it with you because there's, there's just a synergy there with that shared experience. Absolutely. You and I have been working from the same playbook for a long time before, <laughs> yes. before we met each other. Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah. So folks, hey, thanks for listening. My last line I like to leave is great podcasts are the new MBA because it's real time, real world in a fast changing business environment. So thanks for listening. Companies with healthy, engaging workplaces have a distinct advantage over the competition in any industry. We hope you got at least one tip from this podcast to move you forward in creating a workplace people are proud to be a part of. Thanks for listening to Creating Great Workplaces with your host, Dr. Mark Hinderleiter. For a complimentary consultation, call Dr. Mark at 636-346-8466. For more information, visit us at thirdwayinc.com. That is T-H-I-R-D-W-A-Y-I-N-C.com. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.